Today's podcast is sponsored by PCRT Live, April 24th through the 30th on YouTube and Facebook. Log on AllianceLive.org. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. He penetrates to the realities to which Scripture gives expression, and I think that's why he's particularly helpful. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined as always by James Dolza. James, good to good to see you here today. I'm here faithfully in my chair again. Yes, looking uh, looking ready for action. So we are we're glad to welcome Sinclair Ferguson. He he needs probably no introduction for uh, those of you who are listening to us or have been listening to us for some time. He's been on before, but today he's been gracious enough to give us some time to talk about a new volume published by. Banner of Truth called Christ Victorious, and the subtitle is Selected Writings of Hugh Martin. So, Sinclair, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me on again. Many of our listeners may not be familiar with Hugh Martin, uh, so can you tell us a little bit about him? Who was he? When did he minister? And, and what kind of ministry did he have? Yeah, well, he was one of those legendary 19th century Scotsmen um, who lived 1821, I think he was born, and he died in 1885. So he lived through the central part of the 19th century. He came from the city of Aberdeen in the northeast of Scotland, um, which is very much the oil capital, probably, of the United Kingdom at the moment. Studied at one of the two universities there in Aberdeen at that time. Aberdeen's great boast in the first part of the 19th century was it had as many universities as the whole of England. (laughs) It had King's College uh, and it also had Marshall College. And Martin studied mathematics uh, at Marshall and he graduated, I think, with very great distinction when he was 18 years old. And he obviously was a very, very able uh, mathematician. He published in mathematics He was an examiner for the University of Edinburgh later on in his life in mathematics. But he then went to study theology. And just around the time of the disruption in 1843, he moved into the Free Church. In fact, I think I'm right in saying he was the very first person to be licensed as a preacher of the gospel after the disruption in 1843. Then he served as a minister in a small place called Pan Bride, which uh, any listeners who follow golf on television will know where Carnoustie is, just north of Dundee, and Pan Bride is just on the outskirts of Carnoustie. He was there for 14 years, and then in uh, 1858, he was called to Greyfriars Free Church in Edinburgh, And he ministered there for about five years. And then his health broke down. He suffered various kinds of mental stress uh, over the years. And thereafter, he continued to preach, but his, his ministry basically was with his pen. And also, he did a good deal of editing. And so, for the last 20 years of his life, he was essentially a, a writer and occasional preacher. 
I was trying yesterday to articulate, James and I were talking about this conversation we were going to have, and I was trying to articulate what it is about Martin that I find so helpful, particularly his book on the atonement. There, there is something about his clarity of expression and about the way in which he weaves together what we might think of today as biblical and systematic theology that I find very helpful, but I can't quite put my finger on it. So I, I wanted to put the question to you. What is it about Martin's writings that you've found especially valuable? Charles, that's a great question. And I, th- I think you have actually put your finger on a very important element in his mental makeup and in the way he went about doing theology and the way in which he obviously preached and the way in which he wrote theology. And in some ways, it seems to me that his training in mathematics is part of a a key here. Not that he went about studying the Bible as though he were a mathematician, but the logic that was involved in thinking mathematically is a style of thinking. That is to say, penetrating to the inner logic of things. And I think that's something that you find in the way he handles scripture and the way he handles doctrine in both cases, both in terms of handling the text and in terms of handling the theology, he sees the inner logical coherence and drive of passages of scripture and of doctrines in the system of theology. And I think because he penetrates down to the heart of things in that way, and he brings out what I, I think increasingly I have felt is really important for us, that it's in the logic of the gospel, that the power of the gospel as an appeal to our understanding rests. And Martin had that capacity in spades. Yeah, and in saying that, it's not as if he's dividing up the text in some artificial way or anything like that. But yeah, I think that you put it well. He's, he's grasping the inner logic of what's happening. And that really comes through in the sermons as well. Yeah, and so in a sense, one might say he's a good illustration of the difference between hermeneutics and theology in the sense that he has more than simply an understanding of the big narrative of the Bible, and more than simply an understanding of the meaning of the terms that are used in the Bible, so that he he penetrates to the realities to which Scripture gives expression. And I think that's why he's particularly helpful in some of the big areas in theology, and not least in his exposition of the atonement, and his understanding of the person and work of Christ generally. I was thinking of the way that he unfolds a text. And in the collection that Banners just published, um, there are a number of sermons, representative sermons included. There seems to be a curiosity about the text where he seems not content simply to repackage the wording of the text, but he, maybe this is the wrong way to say it, but he seems to interrogate the text with a kind of curiosity, demanding certain answers from it. And I, I thought of this in terms of some modern preaching that I've heard where there's a kind of bland restatement of what was just read, but without a kind of curiosity about the yeah, text itself. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's part of his mathematical mindset as well, as he wants to get to the rhyme and to the reason. Yeah, I don't think any of us would want to say, James, would we, that he brings his mathematics to the text. 
Right. But whatever it was that appealed to him and led him to become a mathematician, a God-given cast of mind that also helped him to find in Scripture what others were missing. To get down to the foundations of things. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think that inquisitiveness, you know, I've often thought, because in one of the children's books I wrote, I actually wrote a little catechism. And when I was doing it, I was in awe of those who had written catechisms in the past. Because when you do something like that, that is to say, when you're trying to give a basic structure to someone's mindset and understanding the scriptures, all kinds of questions arise as to, well, where do you begin? What is the very first question? And then uh, part of the genius of that was that in order to get the right answer, you've got to ask the right question. And if you continue to ask the wrong question, you, will, you, you may get answers that satisfy you, but you'll never penetrate to the reality of the thing. Right. And I think this was one of Martin's great gifts in penetrating to the reality of the thing. You mentioned earlier, we spoke about the atonement, and of course, Martin's book on that is, I, I think, immensely valuable. But what are some of the other keynotes that he strikes again and again, uh, particularly in this most recent volume put together? Uh, what, what, are the, what are the emphases that seem to come up or that he returns to over and over? In this particular book, Jonathan, I think there are several. Um, a couple of them are notes that he always seems to be striking, and they come out in this volume, perhaps not as dominantly, but just as really as elsewhere. One of them is how deeply suffused his thinking was with the importance of the covenant. Actually, in in the context of his writing of The Atonement, which is usually regarded as his great book, one of his concerns was, and he actually expresses it, that the covenantal framework of theological reference was disappearing in people's thinking and preaching. So that, for example, in 19th century Scotland, I suppose he felt people would still articulate covenant theology, but it didn't really make any difference to their living and certainly didn't seem to make any difference to their preaching. Um, and that was a very big thing for him. And I think an indication, in a sense, of how much he himself had imbibed the Reformed tradition to which he belonged. Another huge emphasis with him, and this uh, was an emphasis both in terms of polemical theology in the 19th century, and also in terms of his understanding of the atonement, was the, the absolute significance of the priesthood of Christ. And it, one of the ways in which that comes out in, in this particular book is that he now takes us beyond the priesthood of Christ, uh, making atonement for us on the cross, and takes us to what Christ is doing now and his heavenly priesthood. And there are two magnificent sermons, I would think virtually unparalleled sermons in the last two or three centuries on heaven as the scene of Christ's priesthood that are magnificent in their theology, in their oratory, in their penetration, 
and in the way in which they lead to doxology. Mm. So those are those are two big emphases. And then, of course, there is always his emphasis on the inner significance of the death of Christ. And so he has a couple of essays, well, several essays actually in this volume that deal with various aspects of Christ's work on the cross. I was struck as well by the letter with which this volume ends on the prophetic work of Christ. You mentioned the priestly mm -hmm. work of Christ in heaven, but this little wonderful little letter to his daughters on Christ as prophet and how we need to listen to him and how he's this, yeah, this great yeah, authoritative teacher. Yeah. You know, one of the, I think one of the really helpful things Martin brings out um, in another of his books, which was originally entitled Christ's Presence in the Gospel History. I think it was probably the first book he published and has often been reprinted as the abiding presence, is the way he brings out that the truth of Hebrews 13, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is not the truth of the eternal nature of Christ. That, that's a given. What that verse is emphasizing for Hugh Martin is that today he is exactly the one he was in the Gospels. Mm. Um, and therefore, he is able to draw out from Scripture that Christ as prophet, priest, and king are not just theological constructs about what he has done in the past, but open out to us who he is for us in the present. And so in this book, and I'm glad you mentioned that uh, little letter right at the end, um, which I think he published because his daughters wanted him to publish it. He actually brings together these different dimensions of the work of Christ as priest in making atonement and mm -hmm. in his heavenly ministry, work of Christ as king in his victory over death, and also the, the work of Christ as prophet as he continues to speak through his word to the church. So it's really, I mean, it's just, uh, it's just a marvelous illustration of the fullness of his Christology. Yeah, it's, a, it's just a wonderful letter. And, and the tone as well, is, it just makes it so striking. Yeah, yeah. No, it's good, to, it's good to see the offices. We tend to think of them as antitypes of Adam, but they're also um, current functions of Christ on our behalf yeah. now. Yeah. I think this is, to me, this is a wonderful thing that his, his theology exposes Christ as he was and as he is today and as he ever shall be. And in that way, he brings out for us the fullness of the sufficiency of Christ for us. I was also struck by the other letters that are contained in this volume. I, I think I, yeah. I, 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 I'm just, it's just so interesting to see the, the range of counseling situations he, he in, encounters and the way in which he, he tries to address those. Um, in one sense, it's really, it's really a kind of model, but it's very, it's very, it's very interesting how he goes about it. Yeah. The mixture of, of seriousness and there are moments of loving playfulness yes. mm -hmm. in them, aren't there? And, and these very, very subtle, gentle, but real rebukes to a man who is a, a dear friend and actually a well-known minister who is clearly at times struggling uh, with himself and his ministry and indeed struggling with loss and sorrow. 
you know, we live in a different world now, don't we? Nobody, almost nobody writes personal letters to anyone else. But you even wonder whether what has happened with our technology is we don't even write emails like this. Right. And that somehow the medium has had an influence on the way in which we communicate to people from a distance in those days by letters and uh, today by technological means. Yeah, he's clearly reflecting not only on what he believes theologically, but on who this person is. And yeah. and, and, and it's something that often I, I think we, we don't do because our uh, communication is so episodic and just sort of quick and, and unthought. Yeah. I mean, I guess very few of us have email correspondence. We just have emails. Right. And something I think to when get you, through. When, yeah. you, when you read something like this, you think, oh, without realizing it, you know, Paul had correspondence. Um, it's almost as though without realizing it, as we've moved into the present age, We've not noticed what we're losing because we've been given instruments that enable us to do things, but don't enable us to communicate what letters used to be able to communicate to people. Yeah, there's a sense in which it creates greater distance, even as we're yeah. in more rapid communication. Yeah, yeah. So would you recommend this volume as the place to start for our listeners who are completely unfamiliar with Hugh Martin, or would you suggest that they start with the Atonement volume? Where, where's the place to begin? I don't think this is a starting place. Martin is not the easiest of writers. And in a way, you need to get used to the taste of Hugh Martin. Once you do, you know, I think his works will, you know, everyone I know who has ever read him seriously has the imprint of Martin on them. Mm -hmm. So I would say probably one of the other books would be a better place to start. Maybe uh, Christ for Us, which mm -hmm. is a series of sermons, so they're kind of episodic, really. There's a, there's a little book by him on, on Peter, which right. would be a good place yes. to start. Shadow of Calvary, it's just a magnificent exposition of the theme of Christ's passion. But I would probably put Christ Victorious up there with his, his book on the atonement mm -hmm. as, as works to work up to. And once you have a taste for him, I think you'll, I think you find out that he is so fresh and refreshing he will say things that I think most people think, golly, I've never heard anyone say that before, that you will want to read more. Well, Dr. Ferguson, thanks for giving us your time today. We appreciate it. And um, thank you for all that you're doing to promote the work of Hugh Martin as well. Well, thank you. It's a privilege to do that. And thanks to both of you for having me on again. Well, needless to say, there are a few guests who consistently deliver just far better content than you and I would be able to than uh, Dr. Ferguson. So it's always good to have him. But I'll, I'll tell you, James, I, I said this to you before off the air, but I have found Hugh Martin incredibly rich and valuable personally. I know he said at the end, he, he sort of difficult to get into, not the easiest read. Uh, far be it from me 
to, to disagree with Dr. Ferguson, but I have not found that. I've actually found him to be very accessible. And, and I think it's because, as he pointed out, of the, the inner logic. And that, that's just something that draws me in. And so I, I love reading Hugh Martin. This book is a great addition to what we already have. But uh, very, very good stuff. I think sometimes uh, devotional literature, in the interest of, of being devotional, substitutes flourish and flowery language for linear thought and mm -hmm. uh, inquisitiveness. Right. And I think in Hugh Martin, what I like is that you actually get both of those working together at the same time so that it doesn't, when you read Hugh Martin, it doesn't feel platitudinous. Uh, and maybe it is that mathematical bent where he wants to move from basic premises through to conclusions. And there's something satisfying to the mind. You're actually learning something and growing. And I'm thinking especially, and I'm glad he mentioned the ones on Christ priesthood, the two yes. sermons on heaven, the site of Christ priesthood, uh, where he's sort of moving beyond some of what he does in the atonement volume, taking us up to the, the phase of Christ's intercession for us. But again, uh, satisfies if I can put it this way, satisfies both sides, the the left and the right brain, as it were, both get served well by Hugh Martin at the same moment. And maybe there's something, there's something to that where he's, I brought this up in our talk, but there's an inquisitiveness that where he, he has the knack for asking the right kind of question for which you want to know the answer. Uh, and there's nothing like a book that is just uninteresting because the writer, or in this case, Hugh Martin, or someone would is not very curious. No, it, uh, that cannot be said of his work. The Atonement book is among my favorites, and this one is excellent as well. It's called Christ Victorious Selected Writings of Hugh Martin by Banner of Truth. And if you'd like the opportunity to win a copy of this book, you can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be a place for you to enter your name and information there. Uh, but as always, we're grateful to you for just listening to us, for giving us a few minutes of your time. For those of you who can donate, we are grateful for that. That enables us to do what we do. You can do that at placefortruth.org or alliancenet.org. Thank you for those of you who take the time to review and rate the podcast on iTunes. And uh, for those of you who recommend it to others whom you think might be helped by it, we're, we're grateful for that as well. So, if you have feedback, thoughts, questions, please send them our way. And thanks, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Join us online for the 2020 Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Log on AllianceLive.org for more about Revelation, the sovereign reign of the exalted Christ. Beginning Friday, April 24th at 7 p.m., you'll see inspiring and scholarly presentations by Joel Beakey, Philip Ryken, Derek Thomas, and others as you gain Reformed insight into the Bible's final book. It's PCRT Live, streaming on YouTube and Facebook, April 24th through the 30th. For complete information, visit AllianceLive.org.